Well, um, I don't know if y'all saw Sunday night Oscars. Any Oscar watchers here? Okay, I watched like the first 20 minutes of it, watched the monologue, then I'm old and went to bed. Um, I woke up the next morning. My social media feeds were flooded with what happened at the end of Oscar night. Y'all remember this, right? Best pictures announced. Chaos ensues. Why? Because Warren Beatty, the actor in Faye Dunaway as well, were presenting the uh, winner for Best Picture. And when they opened the envelope, they announced La La Land, which is great. That's so wonderful. Except what? La La Land did not really win Best Picture. And so the whole production staff and the, you know, the lead actors were up there on stage and you start seeing people get, a, you know, come undone. And, 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 and these little guys from the, sound, the stage right and stage left start coming out and they're like, and all of a sudden, and all of a sudden something happens. And it's something amazing actually when you consider it. Uh, one of the producers of La La Land, his name is Jordan Horowitz. He says this, he leans at the microphone. He says, no, guys, guys, I'm sorry. No, there's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won. You guys won Best Picture. These are yours. And so they came up and they received rewards, and it was really, really cool. But here's the thing. I think that there's something going on in that moment that all of us love to see, and that is that right was made right. Does that make sense? That wrong was corrected. And if you'll let me stretch it just a little bit, that in some sense, that because right was had, that justice was had. Now, I don't mean retributive justice, but what was right in actuality fell out, as it were, in circumstance. That Moonlight was the right recipient of the Best Picture Award. And can you imagine what would have happened if they would have just read that and then like the people on the stage who knew the answer were like, shh, don't say a word. Let's just go with it. We don't want to be an embarrassment to the world, right? Imagine if that would have happened. Well, it didn't, thankfully. Now here's why I mentioned that. You see, I think not only at the Oscars do we long for justice, but we long for that in our world too. And we long for right to be made right. And we long for wrongs to be eradicated. And here's what I think Judges chapter 9 is telling us. Judges chapter 9, which we're about to read, is going to show us that the same holds true for God's people in Judges chapter 9. That His beloved, that His lambs, that His bride... That they, they long for justice to be had. If you'll look there in the text with me. And we're going to see how this falls out. But what are we going to do? Well, I'm going to suggest tonight that we need to take a look, first of all, at the text itself. And so what this means is, is we're going to roll through reading the text first. I'll make a few comments. And then I'll come back and sort of make a few points of, uh, of application for us. So if you will, go ahead and turn in your Bibles if you have it. Uh, Judges chapter 9, we're actually going to start in the late part of Judges chapter 8, and I'm going to kind of offer up some context as we go here. So, here we go. What is the text telling us? The what? Oh yeah, here's, here's sort of a breakdown for tonight, if you want to know it. We're going to consider it like this. Like, the what of the text, what's the text saying? The so what, like, like what is this, why does this matter? Make sense? And then thirdly, the now what? How does this apply to my life? Does that make sense? The what, the so what, the now what. We're considering the what first, okay? What is the text saying? So, I'm reading Judges chapter 8. If you've got your Bible, if you have your phone, here's what it says in verse 29. Now, Jerobaal, or Jerobaal, uh, that is, that's the other name for Gideon, who we've heard about the last two weeks. 
Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own town. Now Gideon, that's referring to the same person, had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubines, his mistress, uh, who was in Shechem, that's a town, also bore him a son, and he, Gideon, or Jeroboam, called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at, at Ophrah in the, in, uh, the um, Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. There it is again. There it is again. Who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So, this first little thing the text is saying, here it is, what is the text saying? Act 1, there's five acts. Act 1, Gideon dies. That's what's happening. Gideon has passed away, and we learn that Gideon's a little bit crazy. You see, earlier on in chapter 8, Gideon says, I don't want to be your king. I don't want to be your king. I just don't, I'll I'll help, I'll serve. But here's what's interesting. We're told that he has 70 sons, no telling how many daughters. And the text tells us that before Gideon dies, one of Gideon's concubines, one of his mistresses, I think he probably had many, to have 70 children, 70 boys, plus some girls as well, in the town of Shechem, he gives birth to a son named Abimelech, which means my father, the king. That's interesting. I don't want to be king. I'll name my son, my father, the king. I think it's pretty interesting. But verses 33 to 35 show us how Israel was in this downward spiral of rebellion and sin. Gideon dies. The people turn away from God. Y'all, how many times have we seen this happen, right? There's just a cycle that goes like this. The people screw up. They call out for help. God delivers. The people screw up. God, you know, it just goes like this. But we've said that actually it's more like this. It's a downward spiral of him. That it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And the text tells us by omission why it's getting, it's getting worse too. Usually after every deliverance, there's a phrase that says this. And the land had rest. And the people had rest from all their enemies. And the text tells us nothing of it. Why? Because things are taking a decisively bad turn in what's coming up. Abimelech, we're about to read about him, is going to show us the anti-judge. He's going to show us all that's wrong. And we need to read about them. But first you have to see that there's a little bit of foreshadowing going on. Things were getting bad and they were getting really worse. So first of all, that's the first little act there that Gideon dies. Secondly, we're going to see the second act, the sway of Abimelech, verses 1 through 6. And so I'm going to sort of, I'm not going to read anymore. We'll go here, 1 through 6. Okay, here we go. So there it is, verse 1 through 6. Um, let's read this together. He says this. Now Abimelech, the son of I'm going to read off here. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, "Say in the ears of all of the leaders of Shechem, remember it's a town, which is better for you that all the seventy of the sons of Jeroboam would rule over you, or that one would rule over you? Oh, remember also that I am your bone and your flesh." And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is a brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of baal Barith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at 
at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Wow, what do you see happening? The story begins to zoom in on Gideon's son, Abimelech. And as Abimelech gets older as he does, so does his hunger and so does his thirst for power. But Abimelech is not a judge. He is not a judge like we've read, read otherwise. This story is interrupting the flow of the judge delivers. Y'all, this is going to be a tragedy. A sad story. Not good history. Rather than good history. And so what does Abimelech do? He rolls up into town and is like, you really don't want 70 people ruling over you. Completely inefficient. Not good. Let's just have one do it. You know what? You guys ought to have somebody, maybe your own kin, to rule over you. Wink, wink. Guess who's one of your own kin? Moi. You should make me your king. And they go, brilliant! That's a great idea. We don't want to have to deal with all these people. So, you know what? Let's do this. Let's throw them some money. Go hire some minions. Okay? And you and your own minions go do business. And what do they do? The text tells us that Gideon kills all of his brothers. All of them. He wipes them out because they're threats to his power. You see that? And he lays every single one of them on a stone and he kills them. Except for what? His youngest brother, Jotham, who escapes. And that's going to be very important when it comes back. But what I want you to begin to see is I want you to begin to see Abimelech's character coming through. That this is a power-hungry man. And that he will stop at nothing to get what he wants. You begin to see that? The lives of his brothers. And Shechem too, this town of Shechem. They've hired this person who's awful to, to rule over him as it were. And they're, they're listening to Abimelech and they want him to rule, to rule over him. It's crazy. Well, the third act. Here we go. We're moving quickly through this. The half-brother's parable. And these verses 7 through 21. Um, I'm debating the I don't want to read them. Six up, we're short on time. Here's basically what happens. Jotham stands up. He tells a parable. And here's the summary of his parable. He's yelling at the people of Shechem. He's like, you guys are freaking crazy. I can't believe you've done this. Because what you have done is that you have taken Abimelech and you've made him king over you. And here's the thing. If you acted in good faith, if you did things rightly and justly, then all things be well with you. I hope things go well. If this is the way that you think you ought to treat my father's sons, I hope things go well with you. But if you didn't, if you acted treacherously, in verse 19 the text says this. It says, it says this, but if not, in verse 20 rather, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. What's the picture? Jotham has told a story. He's told a parable. And at the very end, he levels a curse. And it is, if you acted unjustly, may Shechem be destroyed by Abimelech, and may Abimelech be destroyed by Shechem. That's the curse. And so you're left wondering, well, what's going to happen? Whether they act justly or not. What that? We have to turn the story to figure out. So that's where we're going to go, okay? So here we go. Four, I'm going to scroll through these slides that I didn't read. Okay, no big deal. Pay no attention to the screen. Da, 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 da. Here we go. Let's take a look at this fourth movement in the text, this fourth act. Will the parable come true? We are going to read. Let's read verses 22 to 55. We're going to fly through this. Okay, here we go. Abimelech ruled over Israel there 
for, for three years. And God said, sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the seven sons of Jeroboam might come. And their blood be laid on Abimelech and their, their brother who killed them. And all the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. Verse 25. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, that is, against Abimelech, and they robbed all who passed by along them that way. And it was told to Abimelech, what's going on? Let's take a look before I keep reading. What's this saying? It's saying that God sends discord between the people that were together. The people of Shechem and Abimelech. And now there's discord. There's going to be infighting. And you begin to see conflict rising and tension mounting. And Abimelech finds out about it. That's where we're at in the story. Where it happens next. Here it is. And then Gael. What? Who's this guy? He enters into the story, okay? New character entering into the story. And what is he? Well, he's the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives. And the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. Uh-oh, now you see what's happening. They've transferred their allegiance, right? From Abimelech to Gaal. And they went, verse 27, out into the field and gathered the grapes in their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. That means they're getting drunk. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank. There it is. See, I promised you. And reviled Abimelech. Okay? What happens next? Well, Gael's tied one on. He gets a little liquid courage in him. And what does he say? He says, The son of Ebed said this, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam? And is not Zebul his officer? That's one of his henchmen. It's sort of like his lead, one of his lead henchmen. Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him, that is, Abimelech? Would that this people were under my hand, Gael says. Well, what happens? They respond. Then I would remove Abimelech, he says. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. You kind of see, he's, he's sort of taunting Abimelech's army. Well, guess what happens? His little henchman, Zebel here, catches word of this. And what does he do? He runs and tells Abimelech, listen to what guys are saying about you, man. He says, the ruler of the city, Zebel, heard these words of Gael, the son of Ebed, and his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech, who were outside the city, secretly saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebed and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with you or with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. In other words, you'll have your way with them militarily. That's what the picture is there. So Abimelech and all of the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gael, the son of Ebed, went out and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebul, the image here is, you know, these guys are sort of at the entrance of the city drinking their morning coffee. And, uh, and he says, look, uh, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul says to him, ah, you mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. Those, those aren't men. Don't, but pay no attention to that. And he says, no, I speak again. Verse 27, look, these people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. They're coming to fight us. And then Zebul says to him, I love this, where's your mouth now? <laughs> What's he saying? Well, you were put your money where your mouth is now, buddy. You who said who is Abimelech that we should serve him are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. And Gael went out 
at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased them. And he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Aramah, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his relatives, so they did not dwell at Shechem. Listen to what happens next, y'all. On the following day, the people went into the field, and Abimelech was told. And he took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. He looked and saw the people coming out of the city, so that he rose against them, and he killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And listen to this. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and he killed the people who were in it. And he raised the city and sowed it with salt. What's the image? This guy is bloodthirsty. I mean, he has just wiped out the people that turned on him. He wiped out their whole city. He brought it to the ground. He cast salt everywhere. That's an image of saying if there's salt in the ground, nothing can ever grow there again. He destroyed not only the people, he destroyed the city as well. Because he's bloodthirsty. Because he's power hungry. What happens? Verse 46. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El Darid. In other words, they're scared, they're frightful. They go into this fortress, this, this stronghold for protection. And Abimelech was not done yet. When he was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What, have you, what do you see me do? Hurry as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and followed Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and here it is. They set strong, the stronghold on fire over them so that the people of the tower of Shechem also died about a thousand men and women. I mean, you just keep going. What happens next? Well, then Abimelech went to Thebes, which is a sister city who many people believe were in league and, and were supporters of Shechem. And then Abimelech went there and it camped against Thebes and they captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city. And all the men and women and all the leaders of the city, they were scared, so they fled to it and shut themselves in it. And they went up to the roof of the tower. Does it sound familiar? Abimelech's tactics are catching on. They know what's happening. Let's read what happens next. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near the door, the weak spot of the tower. And he bent over, I'm, I'm, I'm making things up here, lights the match and to burn it with fire. And what happens, verse 53, and a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. You get the image here, right? What's happening in this fourth act? that the parable did come true. How do we know it? The people of Shechem all died and Abimelech died. Lastly, the very last two verses here. The curtain is pulled back. I love this image. The, the narrator of the story pulls back the veil a little bit to show us really what was going on. And then we'll jump into some application. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his, sweet, his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. 
Y'all, there you have it. That's what the text is about. I told you it was going to be long, but I wanted to tell you about it. There goes everybody. All right, that's totally fine, you guys. We love you. Jesus loves you. Y'all have fun. It's a great time to leave, actually. So, what's shaking down? What's happening? What's happening here? Well, why would this matter? Well, I think a couple of things. A couple of things that make this matter. First of all, I want you to see what this text is telling us. That's what we just looked at. And then secondly, what does Judges 9 mean? What do we learn? What does this text mean and tell us? Well, think a couple of things that you can write down if you want. First of all, I want you to see that after the curtain is pulled back, we're beginning to learn a little bit about what God is trying to tell us. And the first thing is this, that the quest of power, that the quest for power can be incredibly destructive. You see, one of the things that we see from the word go is that Abimelech is power hungry. He longs for power and he longs for control. Remember, he killed his 70 sons, right? I mean, he killed, he killed his 70 brothers. He whispered into Shechem's ear to give him power. His quest for power led him to kill the majority of the town of Shechem and eventually it led to his own death. And y'all, underneath Abimelech's desire for rule and his desire for power is an even deeper problem. It's the sin, it's the sinful desire of autonomy. What is autonomy? Autonomy literally means, refers to being a law unto oneself. You see, it means we want to answer to no one. It means that we don't like people telling us what we ought to do. And this is exactly what Abimelech wrestled with. He wanted to be at the center of his world. He did not want to live as God wanted him to live. He had authority issues like you and I have authority issues, right? He wanted to make the rules. And the way this was flushed out was by grabbing for power and for control. And let me put this very clearly. Power itself is neither good nor evil. Power is neutral. I don't want you to hear me hating on power. I mean, think about it being good. Think about a surgeon using his or her skill right, to help heal somebody. And yet, think equally about the Wall Street baker whose desire for money and greed exploits people. Does that make sense? Power being used in one of two ways. It is neither good nor bad. But for Abimelech, power was an end in itself. It was absolute. He wanted it. He wanted influence. And here's the thing that I, have to, I think that you'll have to see. He wanted to flourish at the expense of other people, at the cost of other people. He wanted to do well. He wanted to flourish. He wanted to live large at the expense of other people. The great English historian once said this, Lord John Ackman, power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And you know what? He was exactly right as Abimelech has showed us. The people of Shechem gave themselves over to Abimelech's leadership and it literally killed them too. This was their downfall fall as well. Their longing, their quest for power. Secondly, and we'll keep moving, the second thing I think this text is telling us, it's showing us that sin has a built-in destruction component to it. What do I mean? The more Abimelech killed, the more it seemed he would get away with it. Who was going to punish him? Were the leaders of Shechem going to do it? Of course not. They're the ones that hired him, right? He, they were giving him money to go out and kill. Y'all, I told you the book of Judges is not a pretty book. It's insane. It's so dark. And yet there's God's grace all in the midst of it. We haven't seen that yet in this story. We're about to. God, in the end, Abimelech's blood and power lust 
gets his brains smashed out. You have to see that. You see that? His quest ended up leading to his death. And I think this is so important because it's telling us that when our hearts are turned away from God and seek to be our own authority, when we seek to be our own power centers and grabbing for power and control, it has its built-in destruction to it. God says there is no truly, truly good thing apart from me. This is what I love. You, know, you might have heard this quote once. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil evil is for good men to do nothing. But Jesus says this, that there, there's no one righteous. There's no one good. And so now what? See what I'm saying? Like now we need somebody from the outside to come in and to rescue. And that is exactly what Judges chapter 9 points us to. And this is where we kind of make our third little swing here. Evil itself is coming to an end, is brought to an end, just like it is in this text. It's brought to an end, and one day it will be no more as well. God has promised to put an end to it and to eradicate it Himself. So, you've heard me say the what, you've heard me say the now what, and the so what, and now we're going to look at why this matters, why these two points apply specifically, and how they apply to our lives. First of all, how ought I to live in light of what Judges 9 is telling me? Here it is. First of all, it urges us to take sin seriously. You see, though we may not be grabbing for power, killing our brothers so that we can ascend the throne, I would like to suggest this to you and me about our hearts, that every single one of us has an authority problem. We have a cosmic authority problem. We're like John Locke in the, in the television show Lost. Don't tell me what I can do or can't do. <coughs> Nobody likes that. And yet what lies at the very heart of Christianity is, is, is dying to that. That's pro- that so so it, what Jesus is trying to tell us through His Word in Judges chapter 9 is to take that seriously. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that when God gives us commands and He calls us to live in a certain way, these are not bare commands that are just arbitrary. Y'all think you know what I'm talking about? I think sometimes we read the Bible or we hear about the Bible and we go, man, these are just arbitrary commands, and they're not. They're always coming within a context. And I'd like to show you something. I'm going I'm to kind of go there for a moment. Let's go there for just a moment with sex. Let's go there for just a moment. For example, when the Bible says, in summary, that the sexual ethic for the Christian is to not have sex with anyone outside of marriage. This is not that God doesn't like sex or that He doesn't want you to enjoy it. That's not the case at all. He is neither prudish nor is He miserly. Rather, hang with me, some of y'all know what it's like when your mom or your dad decided to have sex outside of marriage and it ripped your family apart. And now you begin to see something about what God's commands are all about. The protection of His people. The flourishing and the good of His people. And this is what I want you to see. The command comes to promote and to protect human flourishing. To help us, in other words, to be truly human. And so therefore, sin isn't only about breaking God's commands. It's it's more 
if you will, it also, I should say, makes us less human. It exploits us. It's, it turns us into subhuman, as it were, because we're not acting as fully human beings as the way that God has intended it to be. In this example, here's the question. Ready? Who gets to tell me how I will use my body? That's the question. Every, I don't care. Boy, girl, Christian or not. Every single one of y'all has to know this question. Who tells you what you get to do with your body? Is it God or is it me? You see what I'm saying? That's exactly what the Scriptures are telling you about. All of us have a little bit of a Abimelech inside of us because we don't want anybody to tell us what we can do. And that's just on the top of the sex. We could go to money. We could go to power. You see what I'm saying? We could go, I am going to go another place. We're going to go to control because that's what he's talking about. Okay? Don't raise your hands. How many of y'all are control freaks? Right? You want everything to line up perfectly. You've got your schedule out. Everything's ready to rock and roll. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I'll back off for a little bit, okay? But here's what's interesting. If you look at what's behind the heart, behind the heart of trying to control everything in your life, there's an incredible amount of fear out there that says God won't watch me. He won't care for me. And so I'm trying to control every little thing to give me the best life possible without having to trust in God. I, I'm, I'm preaching the choir here, like literally. We're great singers. Um, <laughs> I talk to students over and over and over again. They won't hang out with their friends. They won't come to things like RUF. They won't participate and serve and get and, and give their lives away. Because, because what matters is the grades. Now, I know you're here in college to get your grades, and I want you to get the grades. But you need to begin to learn how to deal with that as an adult, what it looks like to balance the multiple areas of calling that God is calling you to. Does that, does that, does that make sense? You're going to graduate one day. What are you going to do then? Are you going to be a workaholic? Right? Is that what you want? God's calling you to examine the different idols in your life and what that looks like to follow Him faithfully to take and to, and to take sin seriously. Secondly, and I'm going to motor because we're getting low on time. I want you to see how to steward power well. How will you steward the authority that God gives you? Will you be someone that uses your power, the power that God has given you for your own benefit and influence, or will you use it for the flourishing and the well-being of another? Writer-journalist Andy Crouch has this wonderful quote where he says this, Power is for flourishing. When power is used well, people and the whole cosmos come more alive to what they were meant to be. And flourishing is the test of power. This is pretty ethereal, pretty out there, so let me just drive this home. Are you using your power to bring about the flourishing and the good of other people? That's the real question. How are you stewarding? How are you stewarding your power? And lastly, this is, a, this is sort of where the text leads us to, to look for and to trust in the true king. You see, the failure of Abimelech and his failed rule introduces a key thing that we will see develop for the rest of the book of Judges. And here it is. The need for a better and true king. All of the earthly judges and kings leave us wanting and they leave us lacking. They all have incredible failures. 
And yet, we desperately long for a king. Why? Because we too have enemies that are too big for us. And we are too cowardly to fight them. And here's what I want you to know. Many centuries later, there would be a king who comes, not seeking the blood of his brothers, but pouring out his own. Jesus would be the king that comes on a humble donkey into his city to give his life away. He is the cosmic king that comes and gives his power away. That comes and gives his control away for the benefit and for the flourishing of others. That's what the true king does. And the idea is, is that Judges is meant to show us where the holes are. It's like Swiss cheese showing us left and right that we have a need for a greater and truer king. And what I want you to see tonight is I want you to see that all of us share more and more in common with Abimelech than we, than we would like to admit. But God in His grace has promised that He will make us His people, that He will make us His bride, and that therefore, once and for all and forever, evil will not last. And He will snuff it out in the last day. And so just like us watching the Academy Awards saying, you know, I'm glad right was made right and that wrong was made right, God Himself looks at the world that He has made and He says, I'm making all things right. And evil will not stand. And there is coming a day where there will be no more sorrow and no more pain and no more, no more evil. And that's exactly what Judges chapter 9 is showing us. God is showing us through Abimelech that evil was growing in Israel from the inside, but that evil would not stand. So he brings his justice to stop it. How does he do it? Ultimately, by sending his son, his son by coming in the flesh, and by bearing that judgment himself. By taking the judgment that we deserve, he takes for us. Y'all, this is a beautiful image tonight. Abimelech is a hard story. Why? Because we resonate with Abimelech. Because all of us have got Abimelech in us. And all of us need a rescuer. And Jesus in His grace has come to do that. Let's pray.